Joy, a phenomenon that transcends our circumstances, a mystery that confounds the enemies. When the world sees despair and doubt, our joy in Christ sings louder and louder, rising above the temporary and embracing the eternal. From prison cell to palace, from dungeon to deliverance, everything pales in comparison to knowing Christ and seeing His beauty. To be content in all things, to have peace in the midst of anxiety, to rejoice in suffering, the impossible made possible through Christ. Oh, to be found in Him, to be called a citizen of heaven, to be made righteous. How could we do anything but rejoice? Trinity Church, how you doing? Good. You are here. We're really glad to see you today. My name is Todd Arnett. I'm the lead pastor here at Trinity Church. Can we thank the worship team? What a great job helping us focus. We talk about it often. Their role is to help us do exactly what they did today, and that's to be preoccupied with Jesus. And we're really glad that you're here today and a part of this service. I want to welcome you. And we have some great stuff to look forward to. You join us. We're about that halfway point uh, of a series called Rejoice. We are looking through the book of Philippians. If you have a Bible today, you might want to wait, make your way there. That's a, a lot of weird syllables for me to say at once, but they don't always come out right. But uh, Philippians, we'll be in chapter three today. Philippians is in the New Testament, about three quarters the way back in your Bible. Books near it, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. If you want to find your way there, that'd be great. In your notes, you have, or in your Trinity this week, you have some notes that look like these. If you want to get those out, that'll help you kind of track with us a little bit today. And for those of you that are in home groups, those will be your prompts for your conversation later on this week. I trust that all of our small groups, if you're involved in one of those, we hope you are, are going well as we're just kind of kicking off a brand new fall together. The goal of those groups is to be burden-bearing fellowships, places where we do life together, we grow together, we walk with Jesus together. And the goal is that idea of life-changing relationships. So we're excited that you're here today, loving that. It feels a little bit more like fall. I thought it was funny when Larry was talking about fall a couple couple weeks ago when it was in the 90s, and today it feels like Portland. So we're really glad that uh, we're finally getting a little bit of that ourselves. But uh, I'm grateful to be with you. What we've been doing uh, as we are going to transition this thought uh, about where we've been, but I just realized that I have an announcement for you that I forgot almost last service as well. Next Sunday, as great as these guys do every week, we have a guest worship team that's going to be with us, formerly known as Summerhill. They're kind of like Prince now. They've got a new name, but it's the Pondo Worship Movement, and they're going to be up here. You are going to love them. They're going to lead all of our Sunday morning services. We've got a slide. And along with that, in the evening on our Sunday night service, we're going to have Kona ice here. It'll be warmer than it is today. And uh, we're just for a dollar and we'll do shave ice and it'll be a lot of fun out there on the plaza, uh, on the pavilion. But anyways, that's Sunday, uh, Pondo worship movement all day long. And then in the evening, we have an after party. And so I want to invite you to that. Make sure you're welcome. Um, In this book, what we've been doing is we've been looking at this idea. There's all kinds of big picture themes and ideas that are going on in the book of Philippians. But one that is true that we just see threaded all throughout the book is this idea of joy. Every single passage that we're looking at throughout our time together has at least the word joy or rejoice at least once in each passage. So this is a big idea for Paul. And and what we're going to see even today right out of the gate, Paul is not just going to talk kind 
kind of theoretically about joy to his readers. He's going to actually exhort them, command them to rejoice, to recognize the grace that has been poured over their lives. And that's just an interesting concept when you think about it. Why do we need to be reminded to, be, to rejoice or even to be commanded to rejoice? And I think the answer is kind of simple if you stop and think about it. it we can just have this, these seasons where we just completely lose sight of all the amazing things that God has done over our lives and the ways that he has blessed us and the way that he's made himself known to us. So it's actually a really cool thing biblically to remind ourselves, hey, rejoice. No matter, remember we said joy had nothing to do with Paul's circumstance. It has nothing to do with yours. It's all about what Jesus has already accomplished for you. That's why our joy can be unswerving. And so we're excited to kind of look a little deeper. Today, we're going to look specifically at the beginning of chapter three. Paul is going to be probably in chapter three of Philippians, more vulnerable, more authentic, well, not authentic, but the idea of more uh, make, making himself known and his story known than most any other place in his letters. So we're going to see a lot of just uh, availability to Paul's past today. And he's going to say, from my past, I want to help you understand the people who are attempting to be influential with you, they're dead wrong. And so let's see what that's all about. In your notes and on the screen today, we're going to see this idea, our now what statement, what do we do with today? Not just a big idea, but what are we uh, supposed to do in applying this passage is to avoid the trappings of religion and value instead that your rightness comes from faith in Jesus. Number one in your notes today, religion causes you to put your confidence wrongly in you, not Jesus. Religion causes you to put your confidence wrongly in you, excuse me, not Jesus. We're in Philippians chapter three, verse one. Paul writes, further, my brothers and sisters, here's that word, rejoice, an imperative, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard to you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So Paul, right out of the gates, he's transitioning. The last thing that we read last week was Paul commending people like Timothy and people like Epaphroditus who had so well demonstrated what he was. They were kind of the models of what he had mentioned earlier in chapter two, to live lives not full of selfish ambition, not full of conceit that makes it all about you. Live lives for Jesus pouring into the lives of others. Timothy had become like a son to him. Epaphroditus had almost died bringing a gift from the Philippian church. Paul commends him and says, these are the guys, these are the examples that you want to live like. Now he transitions his thought and he's going to make a huge contrast. These are the people you don't want to live like. These are the people you don't want to be influencers in and among you. Let me caution you. Let me give you a warning. And that's what this uh, first part of Philippians 3 is all about. Now, it's not made specifically clear, but I absolutely believe that the group that Paul was concerned about were the Judaizers. 
And let me explain a little bit of who they were. Judaizers were a really interesting group. Here's a group of people that had been following the law, following what Yahweh had given them in terms of an understanding of how to rightly relate to him through these different religious exercises. And they had done that. And then they had heard, not only during Jesus's ministry, but even post, Messiah, long-awaited Messiah had actually come and you missed him. As a result, some of these put their faith in Jesus to the degree that they said, we do believe that he was who God had promised us generations ago. But then they did this thing. They said, so what Jesus came to do was to make us better Jews. And to the Gentile community, remember we said week one, Philippians is written to a largely Gentile group of new Christians To them, Jesus was a means for them to now be entered into the Jewish religion. They had completely missed the point of what Jesus came to do, number one, by bringing a new covenant. There's a new way that we are to relate with my heavenly father, your God. And the way that we do that is now through what I have done in a sinless life, a sacrificial death, and a supernatural resurrection. So Jesus is saying, I've changed the game. It's not about some religious code any longer. Now it's about a right relationship because I completed, I absolutely accomplished everything the code was about and put my life on a cross in your place. So Jesus is saying there's a new game, there's a new approach to God, a new way of relating to him, and these folks had missed it. They just thought Jesus was a nice piece to what they were doing an add-on, and now they'd co-mingled this idea of Jesus plus keeping a list of rules. So Paul, and we'll see in a minute why Paul can write so authoritatively about this group, Paul's very concerned about their influence in and among this fledgling church. In and among these brand new Jesus followers, he wants to be, help them be careful. Pay, don't pay attention. Don't get caught up in the things that they're going to want to influence you toward. By the way, Romans 1 through 3 does a great job of developing this idea. Jesus came to bring salvation to the whole world, not just to this unique people group that God had uniquely called out from the nations, called the people of Israel. Jesus came to be the savior of the world. And Romans 1 through 3 especially lays that out. I want you to see the power of Paul's words, his descriptors of this group of people, they're, they're harsh and they're even sarcastic. And I think sometimes you, many of you love sarcasm. You love it in comedy. You love it in uh, different kinds of outlets in your life, but you can miss it in the Bible. And I want you to see it today. First off, he calls this group of people, these Judaizers, he calls them dogs. Now, the reason why that's important, by the way, don't think dog like the little groomed manicured puppy you're going to go home to today. This is nothing like that. These are junkyard dogs. That's what this original word means in the Greek language. These are dogs that nobody wanted a part of, totally strays that just went cruising around town. And here's the wild thing. These same Jewish people, they call Gentiles dogs. You Gentile dogs. And so Paul's flipping the term and he's saying, these guys, they've actually missed the whole point. They're the ones who are still straying around and being these people who are just mean and nasty. They're the dogs. So he flips that term. Then he talks about the idea of their evil doers. And I got to tell you, one of these Judaizers would think that's the last thing that would describe me. I'm a doer of righteousness. 
I'm keeping the law. I'm doing, I'm checking all the boxes. That's the last thing that I would have thought myself of as Paul's writing this about them. He's like, we're the people doing all the good stuff. It's everyone else who's missing it. So Paul inverts the term. Then finally calls them mutilators of the flesh. He's talking about this idea of the demand of this Judaizing group that people had to, men had to be circumcised in order to follow after Jesus because that was a unique thing to the Jewish people. So he says, no, that's not what they're doing. They're actually being so consumed by something that is of an old covenant. That's what they're doing is they're not helping anything. They're mutilating the flesh. Now, a lot gets lost on us related to the significance of circumcision. To many of us, what it is at best is a medical procedure that you might do for your son when he's born, and that's about it. It has very little significance beyond that. But rightly so, God, when he had called out the unique nation of Israel, said to Abram, their their forefather, hey, I'm going to make you a great nation, and this group of people are going to be very unique to me. One of the things that he gave him, one of these unique signs about their distinction was that of circumcision. So for them, as a Jewish person, that was a big deal, and it was right for them to revere this concept because it kind of set them apart from other nations among other other things that were, con- were concurrent with the law. So to a Jewish person, this was a big deal and rightly so. But remember what we're saying. Paul's saying, he's going to help us see it all the more. Jesus didn't just come to be the Messiah of the Jews. He came to be the Savior of the world. And when he introduced a new covenant, the new covenant is not a better version of Judaism. The new covenant is this new covenant that is for all people everywhere, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. There's no need to have a unique distinguisher nationally, ethnically, now within the family of God. We cover the entire planet. So Paul's trying to help this group of people keep this straight and help them see, don't get sucked into that vortex. Don't begin to think that way. Now, by the way, this whole thing, we're going to hit on this today. It was very easy for, it's easy for people of every religion to just simply go through the motions and check boxes. It does not have to necessarily affect or change or touch your heart. And there were plenty of Jews who did the same thing. Paul is saying, though, that for those, they've missed the whole point. Even circumcision had nothing to do with just an outward expression. It was always something that reflected a faith in God. It reflected not just the rules, but a faith in the rule maker. Here's what he says in Romans chapter 2, verse 28. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not the written code. Such a person's praise is not from people, from other people, but from God. So Paul makes a big deal in Romans to say, man, even people who thought that's all that circumcision was was simply an outward sign, they miss the point because we're called to do this in a former covenant because we love God. Because that's where our heart is and our faith is in what he has simply given us to obey. Now, Then we turn gears and see Paul has been using sarcastic language. Now he's going to be ironic. Look at the way he's saying this. He says, now in contrast, and he makes it first person plural, we. 
includes himself among them. We are the circumcision. He's writing to a group of Gentiles who are not circumcised. So they're confused, like, wait a second. That's not, no, no. You're, of what he said in Romans 2, that kind of, that circumcision of the heart, that's who we are. We serve by the Spirit. Earlier it said that they were these ideas of evildoers because they were so about the letter of the law. Often what we see in the New Testament is the idea of law is contrasted with the Holy Spirit. Meaning one set of motivators that I'm going to check boxes. The other is saying, hey, the indwelling spirit of God is going to transform my heart, giving me the resource I need to do what pleases God versus just simply be someone who's religious. So these are often in, in contrast to one another. So Paul is saying that we serve according to or by the power of the spirit of God, not the law. And we boast in Christ Jesus. This is so ironic. Paul's writing... He's including himself with these Gentiles, which you'll find in a minute, he's actually very Jewish. But he's including himself with these Gentiles, and he says, we, we are these people who boast in Christ Jesus. The word Christ is the Greek translation of the word Messiah. We boast in your Messiah. You're so caught up in all these things of religion, you've missed the point. Messiah came to change everything. That's who we've put our hope in. You might have missed it, but we were paying attention. And finally, we put no confidence in the flesh, a group of people who are deriving all of their confidence, all of their worth, based on how many boxes they could check. Paul says, we don't put our confidence there at all. Instead, we put it solely in Jesus and what he's accomplished for us. Paul then switches gears from first person plural to first person singular, He's going to get autobiographical in this next point and really be vulnerable and share very much about his story. And he goes on to share this perspective. Listen to his pedigree. He was circumcised on the eighth day, very much according to the Jewish code. He was Jewish by birth, born to the people of Israel, specifically born to the tribe of Benjamin, a favored tribe within the nation. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. It relates to the language. He hadn't been Hellenized and all he knew and spoke was Greek, but instead he maintained and held on to this uh, cultural and ethnic and racial value of theirs, their language of Hebrew. In regards to the law of Pharisee, he didn't just keep the law. Pharisees were enforcers of the law. They were the guys who were all over and making sure that you were doing what you were supposed to do well beyond what they were supposed to do. He says, as for zeal persecuting the church, meaning I didn't just sit by and let something uh, undo what we had worked so hard to maintain. I went after the church. And I think about this idea, when you think about the power of that, is I'm not just for what I believe, I'm against everything else. That was another way of saying what Paul's saying there. As for zeal, I was gonna go squish that thing. And we know from the book of Acts, Paul on the way to Damascus to throw Christians in jail. He'd already sat at the place and was holding the coats of the people who murdered a guy named Stephen, who was a follower of Jesus. This guy is all about taking down the church. That's why I absolutely love, as you just read the history of the book of Acts, when you read that, you you got to love guys like Barnabas who said, hey, I know this guy's really scary when Paul first comes to Christ, formerly Saul, then Paul. Every Christian is scared of this guy because of what he's been doing, but it's Barnabas who steps out on a limb and goes, I think what's there is genuine. I think he really has been changed, transformed by Jesus. I want to help bridge the gap and introduce him to the body of Christ. 
Finally, Paul says he was legalistically righteous, faultless. And here's the interesting thing. In our circles, no, very few evangelicals would claim, I'm, I'm faultless. I don't sin. I don't have a problem. Okay? We would all be pretty much there like, no, that already happened twice on the way to church and once since I've been sitting next to this person. I've been blowing it, and it's a hard thing to be obedient to Christ. But, but here's the interesting thing. When you live religiously, you actually do have an outward code that in many ways you can check a lot of boxes. You can dress a certain way. You can attend that many meetings. You can do all these things that fulfill these requirements. So it's super objective, and you can actually know, are you following the path or are you not? I'll never forget one of the most powerful moments where this came alive to me. I was on a missions trip with a group of high school students. We had this incredibly rare opportunity to be listening to a a high-level leader within a a religion that did not value Jesus as Lord and Savior. And this group, he was very kind to give this group time. It's about 40 students listening to him. And he was kind of going through the big ideas of what his religion was about. What was fascinating was, as he was doing that, I remember just looking around and realizing all of these students are thinking the same thing. I mean, he was going down to when it's okay to lie versus other times that it's not. And he literally had these specific anecdotal examples of this occasion, okay, these others not. And he was just going down this list of all these things, okay, not okay. And I just remember our minds were blown going, you know what? That is a crazy way of relating to God, of just keeping all the rules. And every person in that room, I think, walked away, I sure did, feeling affirmed, God, that is not what this is all about. You did not die on a cross so I could be a rule keeper. That's never the way that my rightness with you is going to be defined, but yet that's what this individual was only and all about. And so it was really sad to watch and listen, but also very confirming about a passage like we're looking at today. That's why we don't want to try to mix the two and go, well, a little bit of religion never hurt anyone. Well, Paul's going to say, a little bit of religion destroyed who I was. And we'll, we'll see that in, in uh, clear language here in just a second. I think it's this. If we could teleport, fast forward Paul to today in the 21st century with us, if he was standing on this stage, here's what I think he'd tell you. I was a very high-level religious leader, and you could, you could fill in the blank with whatever world religion you want to. He's like, and I understood it backwards and forwards. I was the one who taught it. I was the one who enforced it. I kept it myself. But I want to tell you today, this is Paul, what he's saying to the Philippian church. He's saying to us, I want you to hear it from me, that that's absolutely a foolish game centered on pride. Centered on how rather than receiving graciously, mercifully from God, I would like to show God how much I deserve by keeping this many codes. Some of you come from backgrounds before you came to Christ that was completely irreligious. You just had no kind of religious anything. It was kind of a vacuum. And then as you started hearing about Jesus, you were trying to put pieces together and go, what is this all about? And ultimately realize that Jesus called you into a relationship, not a list of codes. But others of you that are here today, you actually did come 
from a former religious background, and it was about keeping the rules. That's definitely, there was a pecking order, and you knew what it was, and you knew how to make it work. Some of you actually might have actually even been in high levels of, of, of righteousness and of leadership because of how well you could keep rules. Your story is kind of like Paul's as he's sharing this. You're going, you know what? I changed all that out. You're going to see in a minute what Paul's going to say about that, but I can relate. But here's the interesting thing. If your thing was anything but Judaism, then it was an end in itself, meaning if we just do this many things, we'll be right with this deity. Judaism, though, was very interesting in that it always kept pushing on the fact that no matter what you try to do, this is where this group completely missed it, no matter what you try to do, it's a demonstration and understanding how much you need grace, how much you need forgiveness because you can't be good enough. Even within checking all the boxes, there's too many boxes to check. Righteousness is always that far and beyond away from you. You need something more, something better. Paul says it this way to the Galatian church. The reason why you have the law is not to feel good about yourself that you're checking all the boxes. The reason you have the law is to show you how much you needed Jesus. Galatians 3.19, why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions. It was added to demonstrate that there's that much sin until the seed, capital S, talking about Jesus to whom the promise referred had come. So Paul is really strong in his language about this group because he's really wanting to caution this Philippian young church, don't be dismayed, don't be strayed by what they might come in and tell you Keep true that your righteousness comes from Jesus alone. Let me show you more what I mean. Number two in your notes. Salvation through faith in Jesus will cause you to consider religion as rubbish. Salvation through faith in Jesus will cause you to consider religion as rubbish. Continue on, Philippians 3, 7. He writes, but whatever were gains to me in that old life, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness that comes from God and is on the basis of faith. Now, Paul continues his thoughtful, strategic language as he's now, again, turning in this first-person singular, this autobiographical mode, and this is what he's walking out. He's going to use this language about the ideas of loss and gain. Look first in your notes. This word loss was a mercantile term. It just meant a bad deal. People reading this in the first century, the Philippian Christians would have heard Paul saying, I actually, as I was pursuing man-made religion, I was pursuing it, and it was a bad deal. I got, I, I, I got something out of it that wasn't at all what it claimed to be. But watch this. It's not just that it's a bad deal, but as a result of having it, it actually provided a penalty. So meaning this, think of it in a mercantile term, it's about trading something. If I go out and I have this thing and I'm going to trade it for this, in a religious system it would be time, energy, effort, my soul, and I'm going to trade it for this organized thing. What I got back wasn't just a bad deal, like it didn't at all uh, validate what I gave for it, but then also what I got back actually set me backwards, 
It actually provided a, a fine or a penalty rather than ever moving me forward towards something worthwhile. It actually became a detriment. That is the definition of a bad deal. Okay, When you get something to you and it actually makes your life worse, that's what you can relate to. That's what Paul's saying. That's what happened as a result of me giving myself to this. He goes on to say that everything associated with his former way of life, he puts in that same regrettable category in relation, look at this language, in relation to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I count all things in that same sense as a penalty of something that was um, a part of my former life. Now, you would think as Paul's writing this, there might have been this really interesting tension in his soul of both regret. Man, that was a lot of time invested, a lot of things wasted. I actually encouraged or taught people the wrong things. That's really rough on someone who had a leadership, a role of teaching to come to that realization. I pointed them in all the wrong directions. But with that a sense of regret, Paul quickly flips and says, but you know what? That's who I, I was. Let me talk about now who I am and more importantly, whose I am. The fact that I want to know this Jesus. Look in your notes. Salvation was never intended to be a get out of hell card. I think sometimes we can think of it that way or even present it that way. That salvation is simply so you don't have an eternity apart from God. But look, but that it's the same Savior has invited you into relationship. So meaning this, what Jesus accomplished by living a sinless life, by dying a sacrificial death, by being raised supernaturally on the third day, what Jesus accomplished in doing that isn't the equivalent of simply pulling you out of the mire so you can give him a high five in the hallway and keep going with your life. He actually, as he pulls you out, draws you near, wakens you up spiritually so you can respond he greets you with these arms that say, hey, this is way more than what you're avoiding. This is all about what now we get to have. We get to have a relationship that completely blows the doors off any religion. A relationship with the creator of the universe, a relationship with the savior of the world, the indwelling presence of his very spirit in us, that is better by far. And that's what Paul wants this group of new Christians to understand. Now, he says, he goes even further. He says, it's not just a loss. I actually consider all those things associated with my former life as garbage. It's repulsing to me. The original Greek word for garbage is actually a combination of two words, and it just literally means what you throw to the dogs. Now, again, I don't mean what you feed your cute puppy at home. Some of you feed your dogs better than you eat. Okay, so we're not talking about that. We're talking about those scoundrel junkyard dogs that would hang around the outsides of villages. And when you had garbage and you didn't know what to do with it, you go out to the edge of your property and you throw it out, out on the field and dogs are going to come get it. That's what Paul's talking about. I think of my former life as stuff that actually just is repulsing to me. I want to get as far away from me. Watch this. Paul, in his house, if he had one, did not have a row down one of the hallways of all of his religious awards. That stuff was absolutely not just part of a former life, that he wanted nothing to do with that way of life. In the Arnett household, I am the garbage man. 
It's not good when my kids call me garbage, but I'm the garbage man. And when I go ahead and I take stuff out, I got to tell you, when I will take out stuff sometimes from like our kitchen trash can or something else, I just get one good whiff. And I'm just like, whoa, nothing to do with this. Put it in the can and hope to never have to open it again. That's what Paul's talking about. That former, those, all those accomplishments and accolades, I want nothing to do with them. They're that repulsing to me. I, don't, I want them as far away as I can. It's the kind of stuff when you just want to get rid of it, you throw it out back to the dogs. That's what Paul's talking about. Interestingly enough, he brings up dogs a second time in this same passage we're looking at today. Paul utilizes that business term now, not only loss, but gain. And this is what he talks about in your notes. It's also an ancient mercantile term, the idea of simply exchanging one thing for another. But watch, not just one thing for another, but getting a good deal. In your notes, trading up. Whatever you're offering, what you're receiving is far better. It is the exact opposite of what he said a minute ago. I made a trade, not only got something worse, but had to pay a penalty for it. He's like, but instead, now that I set that aside, I want to know, I want to gain Christ. And as a result, that's only trading up. That's Paul's understanding of where he's at and where they're at. And look at this idea of this phrase, not just gaining Christ, but being found in him, being found in him. In this space today, last Sunday of September 2019, I just want to give you a little space to consider what does that phrase mean? What does it mean in your life to be found in Christ? It means things like no longer being lost, no longer wandering, no longer wondering if you have any significance because the Savior of the world has pulled you close to him and you are identified with him now. No longer wondering if you have any identity, if there's anything that distinguishes you, because this Savior of the world says, you are worth enough for me to put my life on a cross for you. No longer wondering if you have this idea of deriving value. Do I have to keep having bigger and better? Do I have to keep accomplishing more and more? That question's been settled when you've been found in Christ. Your worth, your value, your identity is found in him because now it's not so much about what you can do, it's about whose you are. And the Bible says when we put our faith in Jesus, we are in him. When you think about that phrase, found in him, I want to ask this question. If, if that has been something that has not meant much to you, meaning you put your faith in Christ maybe a long time ago, but you just haven't thought about that very long it's been a long, a long, a blue moon since you thought about what does it mean to be found in Christ and is that consistent with how I'm living? Maybe for some of us, you're a relatively new Christian, you've never even really heard that phrase before. You're like, that's kind of an interesting idea. I don't even know what I think about that. Or others, it was really important to you in a former season of your life, but you've somehow simply just forgotten. I want you to hear today that this phrase, to be found in Christ, has such a, a foundational, just ground-breaking concept of what it can mean to really know, God, I don't just want to be around you, near you. 
I want to be found in Jesus. I want my all in all to be consumed in who he is and what it means to be rightly related to him. You might be here today and you would say, I've actually never responded to this invitation of Jesus's. And in that case, I would say, I'm really glad you're here today, but I'd say you're validly lost then. That you are someone who is wandering in search of significance, looking for your identity in something, trying to derive value. Why do you even matter? And I want to tell you great news today. Jesus, from 2,000 years ago, through his word we're looking at today, Jesus says to you, if you would set aside your own pursuits, whether it just be in the world or in religion, and you would recognize how much I love you, The invitation is to find yourself, your worth, your value, your hope in who I am and what I've done for you already. You can respond to that great news today by admitting that you're a sinner who needs a savior, by believing that Jesus is the only savior available and by choosing not to put your worth in what you can do to earn something from God, but instead choosing to say, Jesus, I trust, I I put my confidence in what you've already done for me. You can make that decision before you even leave this room today. And my prayer is absolutely that you would. Look at these last contrasts that Paul makes about who he was then to what he is now. He said, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that's a textbook definition of self-righteous. That's what Paul was before. But that which comes through faith in Christ, that kind of rightness, this is interesting. If you put neck up on stage today, someone who is religious versus someone who is rightly related to God through Jesus, here's the thing I will show you every time. Though this looks burdensome, this is much easier to do than this. Because I objectively always know where I'm at on the sliding scale based on how many services I attend, based on how many do-good deeds I do, based on how much I give, based on how much I dress, boom, 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 boom. I can always know how I'm doing over here. Man, faith, faith is the work. Faith is going in times of doubt, God, I just do not know which direction my life is going. God, I don't know if you're really faithful for all the things that you've promised me in your word. God, I don't know in the times when I want to shrink back and try to earn something from you, would you remind me that you've already earned it? You've already accomplished it. All I have to do is continue to put my confidence there. I think this is much more challenging. I used to watch religious people. My heart would break for them. It still does. But I would think, man, that's a really hard lifestyle. Then I started interacting with someone. I said, hmm, no, it's pretty easy just to check the boxes. This is the challenge to walk by faith, not by sight. And this is what God's called us to. This is where he said real life comes I want you to see, by the way, that's a partnership. Look what it says. God says, I'm providing. This righteousness doesn't come from the law. It's provided by God. God provides the righteous sacrifice in Jesus. What's ours is to respond to the invitation, 
That partnership theme we spent a lot of time on last Sunday, we see it here again. And I want to say this, I would hate for you to walk away today feeling as though the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, was only this sense of religion and that's how people were right with God because they obeyed the rules. The prophet Habakkuk reminds us everything about the Old Testament was always based on a faith, not in the rules, but in the rule maker. Paul quotes Habakkuk when he says this in Galatians 3.11, clearly no one who relies on the law is justified, made right before God, because the righteous will live by faith. There was always the need for faith, faith in a religious system, now faith in a savior. I think the best way to explain it maybe is this. If Paul were here today, I think this is how he might visually explain it. He would talk about the fact that he was uh, circumcised on the eighth day. And he would talk about in his former life that he was someone who was born to the people of Israel. He'd say that he's of the tribe of Benjamin. He would say that he was someone who was a faultless in his legalistic righteousness. He would talk about the idea that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, that he was this person who was a Pharisee. He persecuted the church. Paul is walking up this ladder. This is what his life was all about, is how religious I can be. How many steps up the ladder can I make it? And when Paul finally got to the top, when he got to the place where he could look over, he thought this was something I'm going to earn. I'm going to deserve something from Almighty God because of how hard I work. He gets to the top of the ladder and looks over. I've had my ladder on the wrong building the whole time. Because this was all about me. And at the end of the day, salvation is always and only comes from God. By the way, some of you are really concerned about me falling. You're, I'm going to be fine. I did it last service and everything worked out okay. Paul says ladder climbing is not what the New Testament faith, this new covenant in Jesus is all about. Of how much you can keep Instead, what he says the New Testament about is about is that Jesus already got to the top. Jesus did everything right. Jesus put his life in your place. So now you can be found in him and simply live out of relationship with him. That's the gospel. That's how it's so different from every other world religion. And by the way, a question might be is, how do we know this? Is this just something Todd's interested in? Is he really anti-religious? We know this because we read our Bibles, the same Bible you have with you today on your phone or in your lap or, or what you've seen on the screens, as well as the fact that we believe that the Bible is given to us not to be suggestive, but authoritative and transformative as a result. Look at our core value. We shared this with you a couple weeks ago. It says the Bible is God's story given to transform you and to be the authority in your life. Now, you might know when I showed you that a couple weeks ago, it actually had the pronoun and, and authority, or part, participles, or whatever. What, what part of speech is that? Scott, article, thank you. And to be an authority in your life versus the. I went back to our staff. I had some people that was tripping some of us up at Trinity. And I went back to our team. We had 12 of us who put our core values together. That's the beauty of having a shared decision is that we have a shared problem. And I said, hey, this is causing angst in people's hearts. I don't think we meant it to, did we? And as we talked it through, it was very easy within moments to come to a conclusion. We never meant to communicate that the Bible's on par with anything else. It is always the authority for our lives, and we will say that until Jesus comes back. 
So the last thing I want to do is provide a place where you would trip and over or think something that we communicated poorly. And if we did, I'm sorry. This is absolutely what we believe. Look in your notes or look up on the screen. We've asked you weekly to consider passages from Philippians that commit to memory. This is what we mentioned this week from Philippians 3. Read it with me. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Finally today, number three, being found in Jesus means to fully identify with Jesus. Being found, that phrase we just saw a minute ago, being found in Jesus means to fully identify with Jesus. Philippians 3.10, Paul writes, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Paul, as he finishes out this passage, he talks about the intense desire he has to know. And watch this. It's not to know more intellectually. It's to know more experientially. That's what that word is saying to us. And the idea is is that he moves from intellectual fact knowledge that he had in religion to now a relational experiential knowledge. So maybe a way you could read this. I want to knowingly experience Christ. And yes, to knowingly experience the power of his resurrection. I want to be so closely connected to Christ that I'm swimming in it. I am immersed in this idea of what it means to be in him and to be his. This idea, the next phrase, participating in his sufferings. Interesting, again, this is probably the fourth time that word koinonia has kept showing up in Philippians, another strong theme. And that idea means a mutual sharing. So Paul's saying the suffering Jesus was not just for Jesus before his followers. It's something I want to share in, I want to have a mutuality with. And becoming like him in his death. Paul writes in another book, in another letter, he says that I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I have somehow, when we say that we were at Adam, we were in Adam when he sinned, though none of us were on the planet yet. He represented the human race. So in Jesus' death, we've been crucified with him. The old self has been put aside. I want to be like him. I want to be associated with his death so much that the flesh is dead. And attaining to the resurrection of the dead, we saw that in our series last spring, Jesus' resurrection was simply the first fruits. It was just the beginning of what we can rightly expect and hope for is the way that we ourselves who are in Christ will be resurrected from the dead to be with him forever around his throne. Look in your notes. Paul aspired to more than knowing Christ and his resurrection, the good things, right? The things that we would be drawn toward. But he understood that there was an expectation to also be joined with Christ in his death and in his sufferings. That is all involved in what it means to be found in him. This week, my prayer would be this. For some of us, even in an evangelical free church, you are struggling with religion. You are struggling with seeing your relationship with God as a list of boxes that you need to check, even here. I'm not talking about any churches down the street today. I'm saying this group of people here. 
And I want to encourage you, like our now what statement, avoid the trappings of religion. Avoid somehow finding a sense of pride and and value because you're keeping a list. That's not what this new covenant is about. But I'd also say this, many of you have people in your relational worlds who are steeped. They're at the top of their ladders in their religious system. And I would encourage you as you continue to pray for them, as you continue to be influential in their life, look for a crack. Look for an opportunity when they just go, you know what? I'm doing a lot of this, but I don't know if it makes sense. I'm doing a lot of this, but I don't know if this is going anywhere. That's what Paul had. Paul literally had a come to Jesus moment. That's a great thing to pray for the people in your world steeped in religion. God, would they have a moment when they realize who you are and what you've done for them? Let's pray. Father, we come before you today as a group of people who want to not only read and hear these words from Paul, but God, we ourselves, as Paul is getting even autobiographical, we want to recognize that's where we want to find our hope, our rightness with you, not based on a list of things we can keep, but based on what you accomplish in your life, in your death, in your resurrection. So God, keep us far from rule-keeping. Keep us far from trying to generate some version of rightness out of our own. And instead, God, help us to lean upon, rely upon your spirit alive in us. That that's where transformation would happen. It would be something not just on the external, but something that's changed from the inside out. Would that be our approach? Father, this week, would you also use us to be a people of love and example to those who are struggling? They're trapped in religion trapped in this scale of ladder climbing. And I pray, God, the people in our worlds that we're connected to, would we be a source of Jesus' influence, of love and of hope to a people that are so consumed with this approach, God, of somehow trying to earn. We love you. Thank you for your love for us. And we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.